0: invite you at this time to turn to the fourth gospel, to John's gospel. We're in chapter 9. We're finishing up what is commonly referred to as uh, Jesus healing the blind man. And we've had a couple messages in that regard already. We started this some weeks ago. And we turn an important corner here now. We saw as Jesus left the temple at the end of chapter 8, when they were picking up stones to uh, stone Jesus for what they considered blasphemy, comparing himself with deity. And he slipped away as he has commonly done throughout the uh, Gospels because it isn't yet his time. And so he comes across a blind man and he heals him. His disciples ask is it this man's sin or his parents' sin that have made him blind, and he clarifies that it 's neither his sins or his parents, but that God might be glorified from this is the intention that he might be made known through Christ and the healing that through these miraculous powers, a man who is actually congenitally blind, he blind from birth it 's uh, difficult to argue that this isn 't a clear miraculous act of God breaking in upon the nature that he created in order to interrupt things with his sovereign power to restore sight to someone who had previously been blind. So we're turning the corner now. The difference now between uh, verse 1 through 35 is dealing with that issue of the physical blindness. The Pharisees are consulted because the people that were around him at the time when the healing took place wanted to have it verified. They wanted to know, is this, is this legitimate, this, this healing? Because we've known this man. He's been begging for, for, for alms here at the, at the gate all of his life, and now suddenly he can see. And so they bring him in, and they question him. They interrogate him. And it's a pretty interesting line of questioning, too, it's, it, it begins to agitate the blind man because imagine yourself in that position. I mean, he's, he was blind all of his life and, and now he can see. So this is really quite a moment for him. I mean, this is quite an event. This is like the event of his life, save salvation. I mean, he can see now. And they're worried about who is this, who is this man that did this? How, how did he do it? You're worrying about the mechanics of it you're worrying about just how he went about and you're concerned about who. what difference does it make who it was. But my favorite place is where he says, you know, you've asked me this before. Is it that you want to be his disciples? <laughs> so he is following after his master in terms of being able to rankle the uh, the, the Pharisees and, and the scribes and all the rest of the religious uh, intelligentsia that they had at the time. So They end up casting him out of the temple, of course, the blind man, and he can see. Now, so this physical part is over, so it's an interesting conclusion. We don't know exactly where Jesus was when he was being interrogated by the Pharisees. I would suggest that he doesn't need to approximately be there to know what's going on. Jesus doesn't need to be there physically to know that he's being interrogated, But he seeks him out now in these final verses, in verse 35 to 41. He seeks him out, and now we turn the corner from a physical healing to a spiritual healing. And it's a very powerful, powerful passage. Uh, The title is None So Blind. That comes from that that well-known phrase, there is none so blind as those who will not see. that was uh, a man by the name of Thomas Chalkley, who wrote that in 1713. That's the earliest extant writings we have where that phrase shows up. But he says something right after that that is equally important. It's almost like Hebraic parallelism in that it's making the same point, but in a different way, because he says there's there's the no more. Let's see, I want to get this wording right. So it's wonderful. Oh, yeah, the most deluded people Are those who choose to ignore what they already know? Think that one through. I think it's even better than the first one. Because the first one you have to think about. There there isn't anybody that's as blind. Even among the physically blind, there's no one. They, They don't have that willful choice. Those are the blind who cannot see. These are willful. That is blindness indeed. There are none so blind as those who will not see. There isn't a more deluded people than who would willfully choose to ignore what they already know. And who should know better as far as identifying who the Messiah should be and is than those who have the scriptures, those experts, those legal authorities. So Hence the title, and we'll see how this plays out. I want to draw your attention to that passage now as we read through it. Verse 35 to the end of the chapter, verse 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into th- for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you see, you say we see, your guilt remains. Father, we come to you as always, Lord, we need help in your uh, giving us the ability to understand these things. These are sometimes interesting turns of phrase that are somewhat enigmatic to us on a first reading, but we know they make perfect sense to you, and you've left them in your word so that we might understand so that we too might see and understand for we long to see you we want to know we want to know you indeed knowing you is eternal life so help us to do that now in Christ's name we pray amen so blindness as a part of as a descriptive of the spiritual or moral fallenness of mankind is used as a spiritual metaphor throughout the whole Old Testament. We can see that in a number of places. I've selected a couple here just so that you can see that. And of course, even in the New Testament, Jeremiah five twenty-one to 22, hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes, but do not see, who have ears, but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? do you not tremble before me? Interesting. You wonder what even these same Pharisees thought of when they read such words because you know the Old Testament. I mean, it's filled, it's replete with these kinds of using the, the blindness as a metaphor. You, you have eyes, but you cannot see. You have ears, but you cannot what? Hear. You don't hear. You're not hearing me. You know, I, I think uh, parents can understand that, right? I'm, You heard me, but you didn't hear me. You need to learn how to listen for my voice when I'm talking to you, right? It's it's sort of along that line. It's like you you haven't come with an intention to hear. You don't really care to hear. You don't really care to see. I'm showing you things that are pretty obvious. All of the uh, uh, prophecies that we've seen with regard to recognizing the Messiah when he comes, he comes and they reject him. So we've seen that as we've gone through the first chapter is one through uh, nine in our journey through John. Even in the New Testament, Jesus in chapter 23 of Matthew is excoriating the Pharisees. I mean, he's lighting them up. He's really, really letting them have it. But what's repeated there, In five different places in that short passage, while he's letting them have it, is a common word. So here's how he identifies them in Matthew 23, verse 16. Here's how he starts Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 17, you blind fools. Verse 19, you blind men. Verse 24, you blind guides. You're blind men that are guiding others and both of you will end up in a ditch. And verse 26, you blind Pharisees. So he's, he's really stressing this now and you'd think that the Old Testament, their extant scriptures at the time would come to their mind. That's right, this, is, this is, must be what the prophet was talking about when the Lord spoke through the prophet and said, you have eyes, all right. You can see physically, but you can't see spiritually. You're not. You're not speaking fear, uh, spiritually. You're not, you're not really looking toward me. You're not, you're not looking for me. You're not really interested in what I have to say. Because you've formed your own self-made system of ethics, your own, your own self-made religion that's nothing but legalism. And so you're not really interested in what, the Christ will come to bring. And so Jesus is pointing that out. And we've seen that throughout the discourses of John so far. and We're only in the ninth chapter. So we're not even halfway through. But what he does with those who willfully will not see, who willfully will not see, is they receive divine judgment. Right? They're given over. Those are those who are willfully self imposed. They have willful, self imposed, self afflicted, self inflicted blindness of their own choosing. That's the difference. And so they get judged and so they give, get given over to that. It's kind of like Pharaoh in chapter 7 through chapter 12 of Exodus with Pharaoh and God back and forth, the ten. Uh, plagues that come. You see Pharaoh's heart hardened. Then you see God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And it goes back and forth, five for Pharaoh, five for God. He's making a point there. If you remain in that condition, I'm going to give you over. It starts with Pharaoh hardened his heart. He's not giving up. He's not letting go. He willfully will not let go, even though the power of God is on display there in all of those plagues. And it takes 10 of them and the last is the worst, as you know, where all the firstborn sons are killed, even his own. So he gives them over. That's, this is how that works. If you're giving opportunity after opportunity, so there is none so blind as those who will not see. You will not. That's his point. Isaiah 6, verse 10, make the heart of this people dull. They're receiving that judgment. That's it. That's it. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their blind eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Wow. It sounds like he's pretty upset there. Mm -hmm. You have everything that you need and more to recognize what I am saying and who, who it is that I am and who you're called to be, and when the Messiah comes, what he will look, and you, rege- you don't want to hear about it. You don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear from Jesus. We've seen this in the discourses in John. We're not interested in what he has to say, even if he has a rock-solid refutation of what they hold as their belief. He is the Messiah. It's proven over and over again through the miraculous healings, through the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. I mean, it's, it's remarkable, really. And so in many cases, God gives them over to that blindness. Jesus is going to say when we get to chapter 12, verse 39 and 40, therefore, they could not believe. They couldn't anymore. So there's a, there's a measure of time maybe we could say. I don't know. God's not subject to time. He invented time. We're placed in that context. You have a certain window of time. Ephesians 5 makes that point. Make, redeem the time. Aeon, it's not chronos, it's not clock time. It's a certain season that you have, and that window's closing. We don't know when that window's closed, but it'll close at some point, and they'll be given over. That's why we appeal to people that we love with passion that don't know Christ. Therefore, they could not believe for Isaiah, and he quotes Isaiah here. For again, Isaiah said, "He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, just like Pharaoh, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them." That's right from Isaiah six. Even Paul cites this same principle in Romans eleven seven to ten. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David said, now he's citing David, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Paul loves his fellow Jews, right? He'd give his salvation experience up if they would just come to know him, if they would. He's trying to shake them up. Just like Jesus does. He keeps ratcheting up the, the, the more and more serious statements that he makes. Paul's doing the same things. And when you love something, you don't leave them in that condition. You ratchet it up. You need to listen to me. If you didn't listen to what I said here in this place in scripture, he's bringing David in. He, if Isaiah isn't going to do it for you, I'm bringing David in. That's Paul. He's a passionate man. There's a blindness to idolatry. We see that in scripture. Probably the most clear Most graphic illustration of that has to be Isaiah 44 where a man ends up, well, we could just really put it this way, he falls in love with a cedar tree, right? Because of the wood that it provides. Oh, he found out that this cedar tree provides this wood that warms him. And it also provides the fuel for cooking so it produces food for his sustenance. It keeps him warm, so he, he gives his heart over to a tree, to wood. Can people do that? Let me read it, just a couple verses, just a selection from Isaiah 44. Verse 9, it says, all who fashion idols are nothing. Those things don't have eyes. They cannot see. The psalmist writes that, doesn't he? They, don't, they can't see. They don't have mouths. They cannot talk. And yet you depend on them. You look to them. You wrap your heart around them because they're delivering things that you want. But you don't want me. Can you blame him for giving people over that continually reject them and instead idolize things in this creation and reject him? For thus... He says in verse nine, "Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. They don't even know. They, they don't even know that they're bringing a parcel of shame on themselves, that the, the appropriate response is they should be ashamed of what they've given their heart over to. They, they don't get that. This is a tree. Because remember, the artisans come in and carve the wood and make an idol. And so now this represents all that these created things are bringing this man. That's idolatry. Verse 18 of Isaiah 44, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. They can't see. I remember hearing a sermon by John Piper once. And it was it was so graphic, it was it was creepy. He was talking about the African black fly that if you get bitten enough produces river blindness, as they call it. Yeah, it's it's and and so he talked about in 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 this same idea of these people, they don't realize it. They don't know that they should be absolutely utter ashamed of themselves for what they've wrapped their hearts around as they've rejected God because they're blind. And so he was using that African black fly as an example. He says, it's biting them, making them blind, and they're petting it and seeing a tuft of velvet, a tuft of velvet. Isn't that creepy? Can we be that creepy with idolatry? Hopefully, Christians not. Christians are not idolaters, or you wouldn't be a Christian. You can't have it both ways. But we can create idols, can't we? Absolutely we can. Verse 20 of Isaiah 44, He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? He doesn't even recognize that what he's bought into is a lie because God has given him over to it. You want that? You're going to continue to invest yourself in that and deny me it's yours but it cannot save you, it cannot save you. I would suggest that even though they know that, they still choose the idol. So what we're gonna look at as we break this down, we're gonna look at the Lord redeems his people by restoring their spiritual sight, okay? There's gonna be four, um, the first four verses are gonna be four points, and, and this is critical because what we're seeing with the blind man is one of the most clear examples of true conversion and how that comes about. And you'll see what I mean by that as we go. Isaiah 43, 8. So this is God who's going to redeem his people, as, as it was referred to in uh, Romans chapter 11 by Paul the elect obtained it so there's a, a a group of people obviously that God has appointed to receive this spiritual sight but he's got to do it because as we as we saw that he cannot deliver himself Isaiah 44 or 20 that we just read so that you can't deliver yourself. You can't make yourself see if you're blind. You can't do that. If you're spiritually dead, which is how we're described in Ephesians chapter two, you can't bring yourself back to life. So God has to do that. And he does that. Why? Because we're such wonderful people. We're so sweet. And he just wants to do it because we're just so precious to him. Is that why? Why does he do it? Come on. Why? What? His glory. It's not about us. We're the beneficiaries, yeah, hallelujah. But it's about his glory. We get that wrong because we think so much about ourselves. See, that's that's our problem. That's why he has to come and break in on that self-love and say, no, I'm going to give you sight. You're going to see who I am. You're going to see the condition that you really have in your heart. And when you see it, it should frighten you. Isaiah 35, five to six, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Praise the Lord. God's going to do this so that he receives what? Glory. Wonderful. Wonderful. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 146, verse eight, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. So love is in there certainly, right? It's in there. But the main reason he's engaged in this overall spiritual enterprise, this reclamation project of things that belong to him that were taken from him is for his glory's sake. So Paul, you remember in Paul's uh, salvation experience, he was spiritually blind on the road to Damascus, Acts 9. Remember that? And he became physically blind. Interesting, isn't it? The Lord struck him blind when the the glory of the Lord showed up at that Damascus Road experience. So now he's physically and spiritually blind. And it, it came to my mind because I thought that's a lot like the man in the story except that Paul could see. This guy was blind since birth. But they have two situations of blindness, physical and spiritual. And God heals them both. Jesus healed them both in the blind man, and he does it for the same reason in both cases, because they believed. The, the whole of John's gospel is written to accomplish that one-word purpose, that you might believe. That's what chapter 20 says near the end of the gospel. These things are written that you might believe. That's the whole point of it. He presents Christ in his greatest glory and power through all of the things that he's doing here so that we might believe and that we too might have spiritual sight. Jesus then tells Paul in that Damascus Road situation that he's sending him to the Gentiles. And he's telling this story... Uh, to King Agrippa in Ch- Acts chapter 26, verse 18, he says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, quote, to open their eyes, so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That was his ministry. Because we know from 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 that it is the God of this world that has done what? Blinded the minds. He's blinded the minds of those who are not believers of the unbelievers. He's blinded their minds. And so someone has to break in on that blindness and give us the sight. And Jesus does that to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the rest of that verse goes. As much as he can block any light, any understanding of who Christ is, we can talk until we're exhausted describing who Jesus is and what the gospel is and all the rest of it. And unless God breaks through and gives the light of the gospel, we'll never see the face of Jesus Christ. So verse 35, we find our first point with regard to restoring the spiritual sight of those who are spiritually blind, because we've turned that corner now, as I said, is that spiritual sight requires divine intervention. This is the place to start. That point has already been made. It has to be God who determines, you know what? For this group of people that I've written in their names in the book of life, I'm going to come and I'm going to shine the light of the gospel into their hearts so they might understand and receive forgiveness. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out and having found him, said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Remember, that one word is the key. Do you believe? Do you believe in what you're hearing? Do you have ears to hear? Do you believe in what you're seeing? Do you have eyes to see? having found him so as i mentioned mankind is utterly incapable it's impossible for him to give himself spiritual sight and the spiritual blind are lost so god's got to do something romans 10 verse 20 then isaiah is so bold to say i have been found by those who did not seek me this is this is god talking through his prophet cited now by the apostle paul I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have been shown, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. I didn't ask for him. I cried out to God to help me. I said, God, help me. He did. I didn't ask for Jesus. I didn't know about forgiveness and all the rest of it. Oh, you hear those things growing up. Anybody growing up in America is going to hear those things, but they meant nothing in my spiritual blind state. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Why? Because this is about him, not me. I'm going, this one belongs to me, and I'm coming after him or her. They're mine. They're mine. It's an issue of possession, as I said. He's coming after them, and nothing can get in the way. He will find them. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, so there, there is that love there, right, that's prompting him on even when we were dead in our trespasses. So this is a spiritual deadness. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we hear a similar statement when we we're in chapter 5 of John when he's at the pool of Bethesda and the man that had been lame for 38 years and he heals him on the Sabbath just to irritate the Pharisees that are standing there. Remember that? It says in verse 14 of chapter 5 with that uh, event afterward Jesus found him in the temple just exactly what he does with the blind man he goes after them now it's time you've seen the power you've seen the power the blind see you know you were blind your whole life you know that had to come for as we've saw through the interrogation last time through the interrogation they have to uh Jesus has to come after them. The Lord seeks and saves the lost. Ezekiel 34 verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. He had to do that with me. Now from our perspective we think, No, I remember the day yeah, I, I didn't know him then in New York City, but m- I moved to Southern California and I ended up hearing about the, hearing the gospel. And then, you know, so we, we understand our own experience, but he had to seek me out. He's the one who had to lead me to the cross of his son. Ezekiel 34, verse 16. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice." And Jesus said it even more simply in uh, in Luke 19, verse 10, "'For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost.'" Secondly, from verse 36, so there has to be a divine initiation, an, an initiative by God. There has to be a divine intervention of his because we're dead. We're spiritually dead and we're spiritually blind. Secondly, spiritual sight requires human investigation. You have to care. You, ha- you have to care to inquire. And we see that very simply in this powerful but simple story. Verse 36, and Jesus answered, or no, excuse me, this is the blind man. He answered, he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? This is a sincere inquiry. This is a heart that is open and ready to know who that is. And a heart who believes that he has the answer to that, why not? He's the man who showed up with the power to give me spiritual sight. Jesus has to find him, that's incredible perfect keeping with the Old Testament Scriptures and the New. I will find them. I will seek them. I will give them life. But who are you? So, who is this man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man? Well, who is he? Now, why should it make sense to us that he wouldn't know who that is? He's been blind his whole life. He has to beg every day just so that he can eat. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? The person who sincerely and vigorously seeks God, the scripture bears out, find him. So it's an interesting juxtaposition of truths, isn't it? That God has to seek us out and we have to seek him out divine sovereignty over right next to human responsibility so and the scripture while we don't difficult to reconcile in the human mind it necessarily is there first chronicles 28 verse 9 where david is speaking and praying for his son solomon as he's taking over my and you solomon my son know the god of your father and serve him with a whole heart that's key, and with a willing mind, that's key. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, what? He he will be found by you. That's either true or it's not. Well, it's true. He's seeking him. Jesus sought him. Now he's seeking him. Well, who is he? Who is this son of man that I might believe in him? This is, this is a perfect depiction of how true salvation happens. If you seek him, he'll be find, found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. So if you're one of those who are self-deluded and so you're ignoring things that you already know, Allah Thomas Chalkley, in his statement, you'll, he'll eventually forsake you then and he'll give you over to that choice psalm 14 verse 2 the lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after god he's looking for those who are seeking him and yet he seeks those that belong to him at the same time just absolutely remarkable psalm 27 verse 8 you have said seek my face my heart says to you your face lord do i seek so there has to be with the divine intervention And the ability, there has to be this sincere human investigation that takes place in order to receive spiritual sight. God just doesn't make everybody see. No, they have a responsibility too, don't they? Amos 5.4 says simply, seek me and live. Seek me and live. So you put that over against all the scriptures and say, I will seek them, I will find them, I will come after them, I will save them. Isaiah 55, verse 6 to 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You get that window of time situation? It's closing. Seek him while he may be found. That obviously implies very clearly that there'll be a time where you can't find him anymore. He'll give you over to that. And so it should ratchet up our sense of urgency in terms of our evangel. In terms of our sharing the gospel with people that we love, the intersections God's given us with those that are in our life that don't know the Lord, and so on. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He may be near in the form of the one witness that they've got who's truly born-again Christian of true believer that is trying to get them to see, just like Jesus did in the chapters we've been through. Let the wicked forsake his way, this is repentance, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. That's his assurance. There isn't anything you've done in your life. If you've hesitated because you thought, not me, not me. I'll go toe-to-toe with you on regrettable sins. Shamefully, there he's abu- one who abundantly pardons. He doesn't say, "Wow, no, like you, no, not you, 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 you made a, you've trashed your life. You are no." He doesn't. He abundantly pardons. His grace always out out exceeds our our um, all of our sin. Jeremiah twenty nine twelve to fourteen then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. That's a sincere investigation. This is what it looks like. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your what? Heart, yeah. It's got to be sincere. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Matthew 7, verse 8, for everyone who asks, what? Receives. And the one who seeks, finds. Finds. That's the assurance of scripture. That comes from Christ himself. Third, so we know that spiritual sight is going to require this divine intervention or it's not going to happen. Secondly, it also at the same time requires human investigation. I have to really have a desire to know who he is that I might seek forgiveness. That means I have to be honest about who I am and the forgiveness that I need. Man's greatest need, right, is what? Forgiveness. Forgiveness, otherwise nothing else matters. So forgiveness is man's greatest need. I have to care about that. That's this blind man. Tell me who he is, Lord, that I might believe in him. He is ready. He is ready. He's just gotten his sight back. Jesus wasn't there. When he sent him to the pool of Siloam, he rinsed the clay off. Jesus was gone. So who is he, Lord? Maybe he suspected it was him. Maybe he's just teeing this up for Jesus to say, the one who speaks to you am he. It is I. Can only imagine the expression on his face. He's seeing all of these things for the first time. Do you remember in the text earlier when the neighbors and people who knew him, they said to him, verse 12, where is he? talking about the one who gave him this healing and the blind men now seeing coming back Jesus is gone um, I don't know I've been blind my whole life I have no idea what he looks like and he's gone anyway There's there's some humorous parts in what we've covered already but this this is this is powerful this is this is a solemn moment this is If you want to show somebody step by step how true conversion actually happens, this is it. So, verse 37 spiritual sight requires divine revelation. God has to reveal himself now. He inquired. Jesus has to tell him, Jesus has to reveal himself to him. So, verse 37 Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Isn't that awesome? And you can see him because I healed you and gave you your sight. You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Wow. Bam. Does that remind you of anybody else? Reminded me of the Samaritan woman, right? Do you remember when she said, and this is John 4, 26, when Jesus was revealing himself to her, Jesus said to her, she says, you know, when Messiah comes and she gets into that that whole thing, and he says, I who speak to you am he. The divine intervention and then the human, she did the same thing, right? The chapter before in chapter 3 of John, he did it with Nicodemus, didn't he? There has to be a desire to know. There has to be a sincere inquiry made. There has to be, I really want to know. Tell me, Lord, who is the Son of Man? Who is the Messiah? I mean that sincerely. And so people who reject are willful about it. There are none so blind as those who will not see. They don't even ask. They're not even asking of you and I. I don't want to know. Matter of fact, when we get together for Thanksgiving, please don't bring that up. Wait a second, this is real. You've seen my life entirely transformed. I'm only a a shadow of who I used to be before Christ. I don't care. Wow. Wow. Luke 10, verse 22 No one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. He has to reveal himself. Apart from God, theologians say, apart from God, God cannot be known. God has to reveal himself to us. That is a big moment for me. Maybe it was for you. Maybe you came to Christ when you were a child, don't really remember, but I remember it like it was yesterday. The light came on, and what was all black and white, all monochromatic gray, and I mean that in a metaphoric sense in terms of how I viewed my life, and and it was miserable, and it, bam, it comes to full color, and things made sense. I understood truth. I understood my life, and I understood who Christ was, and I understood my need. Now, these things are incremental as I'm the gospel is brought to me. These steps are being worked through. Divine intervention, human investigation, and divine revelation. So you go from the divine who initiates to the human who inquires. You go to back to the divine again because he has to reveal himself, and he does. It is the one who is speaking to you. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's how it has to happen because we were fraught in, we were, we were, we were groping around in darkness as Isaiah puts it. We were in deep darkness. Deep darkness, He has. someone has to come with a light and only he can come with an internal light into the heart of man to reveal his face so we can see him for who he is and that's what we're seeing happen here. 1 John five twenty, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. The Son of God actually came and gave us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. So finally, at least for this four, first four-verse section that's showing us what true conversion, true true salvation looks like, spiritual sight requires human confession and veneration. Both. Human confession and veneration. You see both in this short Succinct but powerful verse. Right answer, Mr. Blind Man. Verse 38, and he said what? Lord, I believe. Must be confessed, right? Romans 10, it must be confessed. Those who confess with the mouth, right? And have them in their heart, that light has shone in there. So that that mouth cannot hold it back. It's impossible. Confession is made. Those who don't confess me in public, what does he say about that? I'm not going to confess you before my Father. If you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. So get over the fear of man, right? Yeah. I mean, that's not, a, it's not an option. That's, that's an imperative. That's a command. Lord I believe. And then how what happened after that? What's the verse say? He worshiped him. He worshiped him. Job 1, right? Naked I came into the world, naked I'm going to leave and all of those grand statements. And what did he do? He fell down and worshiped. Right reaction. See, because there's some who make confession, but it's empty because their heart hasn't really been changed. They're still living their own life their way. Still the same person, really. The right response is veneration. It's, it's adoration. It's proskuneo in the Greek. It's to worship God with all of your heart. It's to adore Him. He says Lord here, and it's translated Lord earlier. In verse 36, he called him Sir. Who is it, Sir? It's the same word, Curios. Why has that changed? Because now he knows who he actually is. He's the kurios, because Curios was used for just, out of respect for some, somebody who's of high standing in, in the society, but now he sees him as God. He is the Kurios, so he is the Lord, Messiah. You recognize him, he believes in him. It's, It's not because of the things that we say that people believe. We need to understand it's because of the work that God has done beforehand initially that allows them to see. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, take that pressure off of yourself. You can be praying, you can be preparing the greatest presentation of the gospel and they just it just it goes right over their heads it goes right past them they just don't see it they don't get it it reminded me of of Lydia remember Lydia from Thyatira right in Acts 16 verse 14 she was a worshiper of God there you've got a heart ready don't you meeting with the ladies by the river because there was no synagogue in the town in Philippi remember that when we went through Acts yeah yeah and so Paul comes because he's about to tell them. He's about to tell who them this, who this God is that they're worshiping. So the heart's ready, just like Cornelius in chapter 10 of Acts. Same thing. I mean, he's, he's, a Roman, he, he's a Roman centurion, for goodness sake. And yet, he was giving alms, he was doing all of these things that show that he had a heart ready. So you have to have that sincerity. You have to have the inquiring heart. So in Cornelius' sake, he sends for Peter, right? who's lounging on the roof with those crazy dreams, dreaming about food. I know guys like that. That was Peter. But with Lydia, it says, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. We can't do that, friends. We can't do that. We pray for that. I don't know how Arminians pray, but we pray that God would open their heart and and. Allow them to understand and see who Christ is and their need for him and be saved. This is how it has to happen because that way God gets the glory. You see, the problem with, that I have with our, an Armenian perspective is you're robbing God of glory that belongs to him. And that's not a safe thing to do. This glory belongs to him and him alone. So he worshiped him. Proskuneo. So this is, this is to prostrate oneself in homage. This is to do reverence to, to adore, to render veneration, honor, to give obeisance to. This is, this is the greatest being. This is the creator God. This is El Elyon, God most high. This is El Shaddai. This is almighty God. This is who this is. He alone He alone is worthy of what this man is doing, and it's the right response to somebody who's truly saved. Their life is transformed. They still sin? Yeah, yeah. But the power of sin has been broken, and the penalty has been paid for. But until we get to glory, that's the place where it removes even the presence of sin. We're going to struggle with it. But there should be a change, obviously, in the relationship that you have towards sin. You should be different your 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 family friends should say you're completely different i i have a whole host of friends that are just not friends anymore by their own choosing i would have continued to hang around with them when i go back to wisconsin but they don't want to talk to me (laughs) i remember one girl that my my sister was having like a picnic uh, on her farm and Barbara and I were back there visiting, so I kept, went there, and my sister comes up to me, she says, and she told me that there was a uh, a young lady from that I went to high school with that was there. She goes, "Debbie Blady's here." I said, "Wow, there's a name I haven't heard in like a couple of decades." And she saw me, this Debbie, saw me across the tables, she goes, "Mark man," and she comes running over she goes you used to be a holy terror. I said, yeah, now I'm just holy. And she's like, well, anyway, good to see you. Ah, <laughs> uh, lost her. <laughs> Praise God. There's a, you, you remember some of these other examples too where the response is always, I want to... I I want to cover these quickly because you need to see that the right response for somebody who recognizes who he is finally, they see some great powerful act, they respond in worship. They respond in proskuneo. They, they fall down before him. Um, we see it from his birth all the way through to his ascension. Watch this. Matthew 2.11, the wise men found the baby Jesus with his mother. Well, when they did, what'd they do? They fell down and worshiped him. Matthew 2:11. Matthew 14:33 when the disciples saw Jesus walking in the water on the water, how did they react? Those in the boat worshiped him. Truly they said, you are the son of God. Right response. Matthew 28:9 and 10 when the two Marys were sent away by the angel to go tell the disciples that they saw an empty tomb, they cruising back to find the disciples to tell them who did they run into in Matthew's account. They run into Jesus, He says greetings. (laughs) What was that like? Hey, how's it going? I mean, this was just a common greeting he gives them. This is like Jesus rose from the dead. Greetings. So how did they respond? They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. You take hold of somebody's feet when you're lying face down on the ground. They knew him in a casual relationship, not so casual, but more like a rabbi relationship, like a teacher, somebody to follow. They were mathetes. They were the disciples. They followed him because they they listened to his teaching. And now they're seeing who he actually is. Bam. How many Christians in America in 2024 America respond that way? Then, when, you remember when the disciples were sent to Galilee, Jesus told them to go there to the mountain where Jesus directed them. And they saw him and worshipped him. So all of these post-resurrection experiences too, obviously, but even, even when the wise men find the baby, they worship him. That's the right response. And then you see the ascension in Luke 24, 51 to 53, at the end of Luke's gospel, at the ascension, Jesus was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. You remember Christmas during Christmas time, the shepherds. I mean, they, 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 that's the right response. A, a heart that has an effulgence of joy in it that can't be restrained, that can't be held back. And just a worshipful heart filled with gratitude and love for who Christ is and what he came to do. So this man miraculously has received both physical and spiritual sight. Amazing. It's not just belief. The demons believe and tremble. It's not just belief because there's a lot of people that would qualify more as tares than wheat. And tares look just like wheat, except they were worthless. And they grow side by side. And Jesus said, let them grow side by side. Don't cut them down. I'll do that when the judgment comes. So this is clear evidence of true salvation. It's not just, yes, I believe. I remember walking down the aisle or I remember going to that children's youth camp or whatever it might be. Maybe, but the way you know is because you worship Him and Him alone. That's it. That's it. There was a Friedrich Lampe, who is a German theologian, back in the 16 to 1729 is when he died, he said this, the healing of this blind man is a picture of the illumination of a sinner's soul. His healing is a lively figure of conversion. End quote. So you ask yourself, do do you fear God? Is the greatest desire in your life to love, honor, follow, and obey Christ? Does someone need to to coax us to gather to worship, to serve in the church, to give ourselves wholly and completely to Christ. So this is, ends wonderfully well with the, con, the human confession of veneration, but now we just finish quickly with those who were unwilling to see. There's no points to this. There's no points to having point. It's pretty self-explanatory. Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So we know that he doesn't, he's not referring to the final judgment. That's not what he's talking about here because he says in another place in John 12, 47, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So what's he talking about here? He's fulfilling his role as the divine separator, as, 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 as the winnowing fork. He separates those way back all the way to Luke 2, Simeon's prophecy that he is going to be for the rise of some and the falling of others. He's telling Mary this while she's sitting there with her baby. That's what he came to do, to separate those who have eyes to see from those who willfully remain blinded. And we've seen that all through the Gospels. That's who he is. Augustine said regarding this event, that day had made division between light and darkness. He came and the light was clear and the darkness was clear. That's what happened. So God gave them over. He gave them over to their spiritual blindness. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? This isn't a humble, sincerely asked question, by the way. This is more of their arrogant, searing sarcasm that we've seen over and over again. Who are you to tell us that we're blind? We teach the scriptures around here. We enforce it. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. In other words, if you understood that you were blind, because that's what the blind man did. He understood he's blind, not only physically, but the blind man understood he was blind spiritually. I need you to show me who he is. Well, his eyes are open physically. No, you need to show me who the Son of Man is that I might believe spiritually. That's the difference. If you were blind, if you knew of your blindness, you would have no guilt. But now you, that you say, we see, your guilt remains. You still have your guilt. There's, there's no hope for you. When you come with the gospel to a person, they need to understand some, one f- fundamental truth, and that is that I am a great sinner in need of a Savior. I'm in need of the mercy of God, of the grace of God. That was the blind man, not these. If you, you have no guilt, the NAS says you would have no sin. Hamartia is the, is the term, and it's usually translated sin. Guilt works just the same. Another alternate translation is you would not have sin. You wouldn't have sin. You wouldn't be guilty of sin. You wouldn't have sin. If you knew that you were blind. So the sin that they're guilty of is willful unbelief. This is frightening, which is blinded them, plunging them into utter, utter, utter darkness. I, I want to read something from J.C. Ryle and something from, uh, and one other quotation after that, and we're done. J.C. Ryle said this, Let us note what a heavy condemnation this text contains for those professing Christians who are constantly comforting themselves by saying, we know, we're not ignorant. Wow. Yet make no attempt to obey. Such persons, however little they think think of it, are far more guilty before God than the poor heathen who who never hears the truth at all. End quote. Isaiah 29, 18, to those with a sincere conviction, to those who are humbly acknowledging their sin, it says this, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. I wonder what book he's referring to. They'll hear it. They'll hear from it. They will hear his voice. It will speak to them in a a very interior way in their heart of hearts and they will know him they will recognize him because he will reveal himself to them this is from trench many whom men esteemed to be seeing such as the spiritual chiefs of this nation shall be shown to be blind many who men counted altogether enlightened, shall, when the light touches them, be shown to have powers of spiritual vision undreamt of before. End quote. Amazing. God's self illumination, self revelation by the truly sincere, broken, humbled, sincere inquirer who says, Indeed, who is he, Lord? Who are you, Lord? That I might be saved. If he's shown you today that this hasn't been you, but he's shown you now in your heart of hearts through his word as he spoke to you, make it right now. Now is the time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your patience with us, for your grace, for your mercy. O oh Lord, may we remember these principles as it relates to those that we love those that we've been witnessing to those who are lost especially those who have called themselves christians and said we know no we know we're not ignorant we i'm a christian and their life just doesn't demonstrate it they worship something else they worship themselves they do things the way they want to they won't be confronted with the truth of your word they aren't following you so lord you, you, you broke in upon the blindness of this wretched sinner. Do the same for them. You allowed us to hear the sweet song of the truth as the resplendent, beautiful visage of Christ emerged into our hearts and we could see you. And now our hearts beat for you. Our lives pant after you as we desire to follow you from now through eternity. Be glorified in all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.